The only announcement I'm aware of is that on this Saturday morning we will not have men's prayer breakfast, but we will have the men. Uh, we'll, we'll have the deacons meeting, which is going to be at eight o'clock. Is that right? Nine o'clock. Golly, I get to sleep late, <laughs> which never ha- ever happens. Um, we'll have uh, a deacons meeting, and then one of the things we're going to decide is when we're going to start men's prayer breakfast up again, which. I think we were getting pretty close to where we could do that. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're all in right relationship with the Lord, ready to study the Word. We have uh, some fun and interesting things to go through this evening related to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 23. So we need to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, and that means that we'll have a few moments of silent prayer for a confession of sin and silent prayer to the Lord if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for all the many ways in which you provide for us, protect us, the way in which you bless us. Father, we are thankful that you oversee our lives and you oversee history because as we look out around the world, we look out in our country, we watch the things going on in these political conventions and we realize how much we have drifted off course as a nation. And Father, we don't know, we know we cannot turn it around, and we know only you can turn it around. And Father, we pray that that would be possible. But if not, Father, we pray that you would give us the grace orientation to deal with the situation, to deal with those who differ with us, and those who may be hostile to us, and those who may attack us for various reasons because of our uh, firm stand on the truth of your word. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth this evening as we study your word that we may be strengthened and encouraged by the fact that you have a plan and that you're carrying out that plan. And that plan has been given to us in many ways in predictive prophecies throughout the Old Testament and some in the New Testament. And we know that this church age will end. It may be tomorrow. It may be in another century or two. We just do not know. Many have thought it would be in their lifetime, but the rapture will come at any moment. We have no idea when. There are no signs for it. And so, Father, we, we pray that until then we may be faithful and that we may stand firm no matter what may come into our lives. And we pray that we might stand steady on your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, this evening, open your Bibles to Second Samuel chapter 23. Second Samuel chapter 23, and we are going to look at the righteous Messiah. Now, if you were here last Thursday night where we talked about uh, government and we talked about justice, you're going to see that there are some uh, areas that overlap and intersect uh, with what we studied last week. 
But we need to take a good look at this in Second Samuel 23 because there are uh, various problems with the understanding of this passage. There are problems with the translation that you'll find in many of your Bibles. It will be interesting. We have one person here who looks at a Spanish Bible, and we have one person here who has a Korean Bible. And so I'm curious to know how they handle the translation, especially in verse 1 as we go through this. Uh, So uh, we've got to deal with some technicalities, but they're not that technical as much as they are important. So the focus of these seven verses is on the righteous Messiah. This is uh, David's last words. They're not really his last, last words. He's not writing this and then uh, dying. But this is sort of his last testament. And I believe that what he is doing is telling us something about why he wrote the Psalms and what the Psalms are all about. And he puts these in a... A historical perspective. But what I have just told you is greatly debated, and it has it is a controversial topic, and so we need to understand it just a little bit. As we have gone through our study now of 2 Samuel, we have seen that there are three basic divisions to 2 Samuel. We always have to think in terms of wh- how the Jews wrote the Bible. They don't write it as history, even though that's what it is. It's not exactly biography, although it contains a lot of biography. It is a theologized history because God is selecting certain events and certain people, and he is going to tell us about those events and about those people and set that within the broader framework of, of the scripture and of his past promises, for example, it's set in the context of the Noahic covenant, set in context of the Abrahamic covenant, set in the context of the Mosaic covenant. But then it is also looking forward. It is looking forward to the coming of that promised Messiah, first identified as the seed of the woman back in Genesis chapter 3.15, And then that seed is traced through all those genealogies people get bored with and skip over when they're reading the Bible. But the idea is to trace the line of the seed. And it takes us eventually to Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then the 12 tribes. And then the tribe of Judah is the one that is identified as the one tribe from which the scepter, that is a sign of royalty, the kingship, will not depart. And then you have... Uh, other uh, messianic prophecies we've studied in the past in numbers we have the uh, oracles those prophetic visions of Balaam uh, that predict certain things about the Messiah picking up on themes from the crushing of the serpent's head in Genesis chapter 3 the scepter that will not depart from uh, Judah the imagery of the lion of Judah uh, that he picks these up and then he talks about the fact that there will be a star that's eventually picked up and fulfilled at the time of Christ. So we have those prophecies of Balaam. Uh, there's not a whole lot more given until you hit 1 Samuel chapter t- chapter uh, 1, chapter 2, where you have Hannah's psalm. 
And we studied that and how it identifies the Messiah again, that it is going to be through this son that God has given her that the that he will have something to do with the coming of that Messiah. And, of course, it is her son Samuel who will anoint David, and it is King David who is given the covenant by God that there will be a, a future king that will come from him, and his line will go on in perpetuity for eternity through this one who will come uh, from his line so that will live forever. And so that indicates that this future Messiah is going to be both human and divine because humans can't live forever. He will live forever. He is the eternal one. And so we see all of this. That's that the focal point really the theological center of first and second Samuel is the Davidic covenant. So God organizes the material not in necessarily chronological way, but in a thematic way because he is showing certain things ultimately about Christ. Now I want to have a little parenthetical comment here. Um, this is really going to be evident next week because we're going to come back next week and we're going to talk about these these passages that deal with the battles with the Philistines and all of David's mighty men. And, and uh, that kind of fits with this little segue right now. What we have in today's generation in the Reformed camp in covenant theology is a new system of, her, of hermeneutics, a new system of interpretation. And this system of interpretation is called Christ-centered hermeneutics. And that sounds good, doesn't it? The Bible's about Jesus. And everybody says, amen. The Bible's about Jesus. And then you hear people say, every verse of the Bible is about Jesus. And if you don't have your radar on, you're going to say, well, maybe not every verse. But that's what they mean. That's their new hermeneutic, is every single verse is ultimately about Jesus. So in order to get that, they're going to have to do what? They're going to have to allegorize, allegorize certain things. So we, we have to be, be careful with that. The Bible is about Jesus, but that does not mean that every single verse and every single uh, statement is going to be about Jesus. In fact, when we get down to, for example, uh, when we get down to verse 9 of this chapter, which will be next week, we read, and after him... That's after the uh, hero that's mentioned in verse 8, Yoshev Bashabeth. After him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. How is that about Jesus? That's not about Jesus. And you find a lot of verses like that, in the especially in the historical books. And you can't even take the broader um, passage and make it about Jesus. It's about David and God's protection of David. And we're going to look at that next time. But my, my point in all of this is that God is organizing the material in order to ultimately prepare the world in the Old Testament for the coming of the seed of the woman, the Messiah. Then the seed of the woman comes, that is Jesus, 
And then he is crucified, he is buried, he rises from the dead, and then he establishes a new organism called the church, and the rest of the New Testament is about the church, to get the rapture of the church at the end of Revelation chapter 3, and then it's about God restoring his plan to Israel, uh, and all of the judgments that come in order to bring that about, to purify the world, and for God to judge all the sentient creatures for their sin, that is, those uh, earth dwellers who, who... Uh, Revelation talks about who are all unbelievers and the fallen angels who are cast to the earth midway through through Revelation. So what we see here fits into that prophetic panorama. So just to remind you, we saw how God blesses David. God, out of his grace, will discriminate. So discrimination is not evil evil discrimination is not sinful it can be it may not be but god makes choices and he selected david to bless him he didn't select him for salvation he selected him to be the king of israel and so he's showing how this works and then god is also selecting david to be the royal seed through whom through his descendants uh, the messiah will come so this is covering Second Samuel chapters 2 through 10, and the central part of that is Second Samuel 7, which is the Davidic covenant. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up and remind you of the Davidic covenant is because these seven verses in chapter 23 are all about the Davidic covenant and, and the way God is blessing David with the Davidic covenant. So we see God's blessing in those chapters, and then we see how David sins, And we see the dark side of David in the subsequent chapters from 11 through 20 as he sins and then as God works out his divine discipline on David. The unique thing about the Bible is of all religious books, the heroes are painted uh, warts and all. We learn how uh, they are failures. We learn about their failures, embarrassing things. And they will be known throughout all of history by these names. I mean, who would, you know, just stick your name in there. Who would want to be like Rahab? Known throughout history is Rahab the harlot. And she becomes a very solid believer. And it's just absolutely remarkable. And she's also in the line of David. So we have these things that are going on in the text. And, um, and so God is pointing us to that promise. And so these six appendices that we come to at the end in chapters 21 through 24 are are there not as leftovers, not as things that were forgotten and let's bring them in, but to focus the reader at the end on certain things that God is doing in the life of David. And so as we, we looked at this in terms of of these uh, of seven different things here that he organizes the kingdom at the end of second samuel twenty twenty three to twenty six and that's not one of the really that's usually not included as the six appendices, but I think it's got to be somewhere uh the famine judgment is halted this is David realizes that God is judging the nation through this famine. he goes to the Lord, inquires of the Lord, why is this going on? And the problem is injustice, and we studied this. And the injustice was Saul's injustice, 
And it was his, his violation of the covenant that Joshua had made with the Gibeonites. And so it's a failure of justice. And, and want to hang on to that concept. And then we see that God is going to protect David uh, from the sword in the circumstances described in uh, 21, 15 to 22, and how there's, there's certain battles and certain warriors that are highlighted there. And then we'll see the centerpiece is really in verse, is chap, uh, chapter 22, which we st- studied last week as, as David praised uh, Yahweh for his faithful deliverance. And then in this section, David's last testament that reflects on the Davidic covenant. And then next time I'm going to tie those two sections that deal with the, the warfare and the Philistines together to show how God is protecting. That's the whole point. God protected David. And we're going to learn some things about how God protects us. So we'll stay tuned for that. And then uh, we'll go to the last chapter after that, chapter 24, where David sins and there's a plague brought on uh, Israel, but it ends well. It ends well. So we looked at the structure here. This is so important. We looked at the structure. There is this famine. It's a chiasm. And you're familiar with this by now, that a chiasm comes from the Greek letter key or chi, as it's wrongly pronounced by many people, the letter key, and it is a an X. And so if you take the left side of the X and put it in there, it shows the center of this literary organization. And so the focal point for us is right here, dead center, at the end of chapter 22 and the beginning of chapter uh, 23. And that verse is Second Samuel 22:51. He is the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed. So king and anointed are parallel there. The word anointed is the word Mashiach. It applies to the ultimate anointed king, who is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But it also applied to the kings of Israel. And then it's a reminder of that promise in the Davidic covenant that God was making this covenant with David and his descendants forever. And so that's where we stopped last time. Now, when we look at these verses coming up in 2 Samuel 23.1, it's my belief that uh, this is a critical link in understanding why David wrote the Psalms. This is not my belief alone, but it's the consensus and a growing consensus of a number of conservative evangelical scholars who are going against the grain of scholarship for the last 200 years. Uh, Today I spent a lot of time reading through different commentaries on 2 Samuel and on these particular verses. And they all tended to agree, and they all tended to, it seemed to me, jump through a lot of hoops and do some retranslation of a couple of verses that seemed pretty plain to me uh, in order to justify their translation of these passages and to uh, understand their interpretation of these particular Uh, passages. And one in particular that I found to be extremely helpful in dealing with the Hebrew text, just, I just, 
felt like I was slogging through quicksand wearing snowshoes all day, trying to understand, because there were elements of it that I just couldn't make fit. And this is a real problem today in, in scholarship, and you need to be aware of it, because when you read through the Bible and you read through your English translation, uh, I don't know of any English translation that gets this right. But it's important to get it right. There's a couple of translations that will get one part right or the other part right, but they don't all get it right. And it's become very clear to me over the last uh, 15 to 20 years as I have studied through uh, a lot of this material related to the Old Testament and um, coming under the influence of some really great Hebrew scholars and Messianic scholars like Arnold Fruchtenbaum and Michael Rydelnik, and there are a number of other scholars out there that uh, are in that same camp and have come to come to this particular view. And we have to understand what has happened here. Because most of evangelical scholarship has been influenced to one degree or another in many areas by what is called critical scholarship. And that's not a real user-friendly term. Uh, Critical scholarship really relates to what was originally uh, called higher criticism or historical criticism. And this was a a product of the... uh, of the Enlightenment scholarship in the 1600s in Europe and specifically in Germany. Now remember, just to get your timeline together, it's 1517 when Martin Luther nails the 95 theses or debating parts points to the door of the church in in Wittenberg, Germany. And it's a back-to-the-Bible movement. There are five solas that are usually... Uh, that are usually connected to the Reformation. Sola is a Latin word meaning only or alone. So you have sola scriptura, only the scripture. You have sola gratia, only grace. You have uh, uh, sola deo gloria, only by only for the glory of God. And so these are the solas. And the first one is the important one, Sola Scriptura. So it's a back-to-the-Bible movement, and the more the uh, Reformed theologians got back to the Bible in the 15th century, the closer they got to the text. But in the first half, they're really fighting with the Catholic Church about how is a person saved. And we've studied all those things in the past, and it takes almost 100 years or so before you get into, uh, especially in England in the early 1600s, they finally start applying this literal interpretation to prophecy. And they began to realize there's a future for Israel and a future for the Jews, and the millennial kingdom is in the future. It's not right now. And so they're shifting from being amillennial, no literal millennium, just a spiritual kingdom. They're shifting from being amillennial to premillennial because they're taking the scripture uh, literally, but in the on the continent, it's always a problem on the continent. England, England rose to spiritual heights that no no country on the continent rose to because they were still so many of them were mired in uh, Roman Catholicism. But what comes out of of Europe in the uh, 
the continental Europe in the 1600s is this movement that is a reaction to the authority of the Bible, and it's called the Enlightenment. Even the term it reflects their arrogance that they were now enlightened and what went on before those people who were tied to that book and made God the authority and the Bible the authority, they were in the dark ages. But now that we've freed ourselves from the authority of the church, we can be enlightened because we have reason and we have uh, the ability to use our experience. And so rather than judging their reason, their logic, their understanding by the scripture, they're judging the scripture by their reason and their logic. And as a result of that, they move away from understanding biblical authority and taking the Bible as the inspired inerrant word of God. And now it is just another human book. So eventually what happens is the basic claims of the scripture in terms of the age of the earth, that the earth really isn't that old, the authorship of the Pentateuch that Moses really didn't write, Genesis through Deuteronomy, that uh, the gospels that we know of by the names Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, well, they weren't written by those guys at all. In fact, they were written by some people we don't know anything about, maybe 100 or 200 years after Jesus. Okay, so all of this begins to be developed. It comes out of the Enlightenment period. And what undergirds all of that is they reject supernaturalism because we can't, on the basis of human reason alone, explain miracles. We can't explain how God could create everything out of nothing. Uh, We can't explain how God could oversee writers of Scripture so that what they wrote was without error. We can't understand how people could write predictive prophecy and that it would be accurate. So all of those things were rejected by the time you get into the 1800s. More and more Bible scholars in Europe are rejecting the divine origin of the Bible. They're opting for grounding everything on human reason. And so they reject miracles. They reject the virgin birth. They reject the deity of Christ. They reject uh, the need for a substitutionary uh, sacrifice. They reject uh, predictive prophecy. All of these things are taking place And so one of the tools that they used is that they would create this thing called literary criticism or historical criticism, and they would come up with these really fancy, difficult ways to try to explain how the Bible was written. Nobody else did this with anything else, but they said, well, you take the the first five books of the Bible, and uh, one author wrote part of this, Uh, and he used the name Yahweh. Then another author, his favorite name for God was Elohim. And then you have the guy who wrote Deuteronomy, and he's basically revising what Moses or whoever wrote in Exodus and Leviticus. And so you have him, he's called the D author, and then you have the guy who wrote all the rituals and everything. He's the P author. He's the priestly author. So that gave birth to what's known as the J-E-D-P Theory and that somewhere around 400 BC, somebody got together and said, Oh, we have all these different accounts, let's merge them together. And so that's how we got the, got the Old Testament. Now, most of us realize that there are serious problems with that, but 
What that led to is the rise of liberalism in the denominations and eventual splits. And so that way of thinking about Christianity was known as 19th century uh, Protestant liberalism. Okay, it, man is the center of interpretation. Man is the center of everything. And there's n- nothing about the Bible that is historically, uh, historically correct. Now, what that meant for the study of the Psalms, that's where, where we're talking about is the study of the Psalms. What exactly uh, did that mean? Just a minute, I need to fix something that keeps. Okay. Let me stop this a minute. I can't. There we are. Okay. What this meant for the study of of Psalms is that they were viewed not as things that were actually written by King David. We don't even know if there really was a person named King David. I mean, that was the line from liberals until just recently. And once they discovered uh, the Misha, or the Moabite stone, which mentions the house of David, they doubted that any of this... uh, See, the, the liberal mindset with reason is it's all just made up by man. This is one of Satan's great attacks upon the accuracy of the, of, of the Bible. And so they, they would reject Davidic authorship of the, of the Psalms, though 73 Psalms in the, in the Masoretic text have a, a superscription that says that David wrote them. In the Septuagint, it credits 84 Psalms to David. And the New Testament quotes references a couple of them that that were written by David that don't have a a superscription in the Hebrew text. So that's a view of liberalism. David didn't write this, and but somebody did. And it, and as I've read through a number of different commentaries, both modern and 19th century, that are pretty good in some ways, I've just been astounded by how many people have not taken Davidic authorship of the Psalms of any of these Psalms seriously as I've gone through them. It's just amazing. And there's only a few that uh, that I would that I would recommend. Of course, Alan Ross was here last year. He doesn't have a problem with Davidic authorship. He does a a, a great job for the most part on the Psalms, and um, so we have this issue with critical scholarship. And the problem we have with the world, I mean, with, you know, the, that the church has always had with the world, is that the church. The ideas in Christianity in any given decade always reflect the ideas of the world around them, the cosmic system around them, the, the culture around them, because all the believers that are inside the church that are there on Sunday morning are coming out of the culture. They've been brainwashed growing up by all of the human viewpoint systems of thinking that characterize the culture, and they bring it into the church, and and some of them don't get rid of those ideas, and then they grow up and they want to be Bible teachers, and they are still trying to interpret the Bible to some degree through their human, uh, human viewpoint grid. And so we have conservative scholars that become entranced with the idea of scholarship that I want to be respected, I want to have a king like everybody else. Remember, Israel was like that. Well, they want to have respect like every other scholar. And so they began to waffle on certain things. 
in a conscious way, they're aware of it. And in other ways, they're not aware of it. It's just that they have read so much and heard so many very brilliant people with lots of letters after their name who take these views that they become influenced uh, by that. And so uh, in that, uh, so they become influenced by critical scholarship and they begin to look at the Psalms a little bit differently, that, that they weren't written as predictive song, prophecies about Jesus. They're not messianic Psalms in that way. And you'll find that, that there are a lot of people who believe that, but they will talk about messianic prophecy, but they don't mean what I mean by it. What I mean is David wrote this psalm, like Psalm 22, like Psalm 110, many others, that David wrote them as prophecies about the Messiah. They're not written about events in David's life that somehow reflect the events in the life of Jesus. One of the most uh, renowned professors who once was at Dallas Seminary was a man named Bruce Waltke. And Bruce Waltke was one of these really brilliant guys in the Hebrew language, not a great theologian. After he left Dallas the year before I started, he went on to two or three other schools, and his theology morphed. Every school he went to, he took on, like, like a chameleon, he took on the theology of the school, and he ends up a five-point Calvinist and amillennial when once he was a strong dispensationalist. And he was very influential on the Hebrew department, the Old Testament department at Dallas Seminary. You've heard me say often that when Satan fell, he fell into the choir loft, and then he bounced into the Old Testament department. Well, this is an example of that. His, uh, he had two students who were, who were his uh, assistants uh, during their last years in seminary. You know of both of them. One was Alan Ross, who was considered his protege. He had another protege named Charles Clough. But Charlie wrote his master's thesis on the evangelical response to Henry Morris's book, The Genesis Flood. And Waltke waffled on a lot of those creation issues. And that's one reason he left Dallas. He wasn't that comfortable and went on. And he's got some really strange ideas now. But he left his imprint on that department so that uh, in one of his recent books, Waltke has made the comment uh, that in the original composition of the Psalms, the king is the human subject of the Psalms. What he means by that is whenever you see these royal Psalms, they're always about a human king. They're always about David or they're about a human king. They're not about the Messiah. They weren't written to talk about the Messiah. And he says, we must bear in mind that the king is presented idealistically and prays to God and praises him through the inspiration of God's spirit. But for Waltke, it's not predictive prophecy. And so that set the tone for uh, Dallas Seminary. And so this presents a lot of confusion for seminary students who heard professors who were trying to uh, skirt the issue, trying to figure these things out on their own, we, we learned later. And as a student in the 70s, 
I didn't understand any of this. Nobody had ever told me this was going on. I had no clue. I had a conversation with Tommy Ice uh, not too long ago because he and I were in seminary together. and We had heard uh, Michael Rydelnik give his testimony at pre-trib where he talks about how he was fully aware of these issues, and he was only two years behind me. Tommy was a year behind me. Uh, Michael was two years behind me. And... Rydelnik said that he went to every professor in the Old Testament department and there was only one who believed in messianic prophecy. That is literal, that there were messianic psalms that were written as predictive prophecy of the Messiah. Now, everybody you know as a pastor that went through Dallas Seminary was influenced by that Old Testament department. And it wasn't until, I never caught that. I thought that whenever they talked about Messianic prophecy, they were talking about Messianic prophecy in terms of what I meant by Messianic prophecy. That is that that David is writing about the Messiah. But then they would say things, and I'd say, I don't understand that. It never caused me to change my view, but I just thought, well, that's just odd. That's just strange. And it really wasn't until, like I said, about 20 years ago, that I began to wake up to all of this. I think Tommy was waking up to it about that time also. And it's just been in the last 20 years that there have been, has been the rise of these conservative scholars who look at these Psalms as being truly predictive and that David is writing it. And, and one of the key, issue, key passages is this passage uh, in 2 Samuel 1 through 7. So I just want to remind you of something. We've gone through the four ways that the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament as it is fulfilled. Okay, we have various passages in the Gospels that all start off and it was fulfilled. But we tend to think of every one of them the same way, and that's this first category. As if every time that is said, the Old Testament passage is a literal prophecy that has literal fulfillment. For example, in Matthew 2, 5, and 6, when Herod is asking his advisors, well, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Now, that is a predictive prophecy that this ruler, this future ruler, is going to be a ruler who uh, uh, has no, uh, no end, no beginning, no end, and he is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so that's in Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2 says, uh, Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Okay, that's predictive prophecy. Because in the context of Micah 5.2, he's talking about what will happen in the future. Then the second category is one that some people have a little harder time getting their fingers around, their mental fingers around, uh, literal historical event and typological fulfillment. This is talking about something that happened historically. It's not a prediction of something that will happen in the future, but it is a type or a picture or it is, uh, in some way, it represents something about the future Messiah. 
So in Matthew 2.15, Matthew reads, and was there until the death of Herod, that is talking about uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus, that they were there until the, in Egypt until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled. See, there's that fulfillment language. See, you want to read that, that there's a prophecy that says this. But I'm going to show you it's not a prophecy. Uh, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, out of Egypt I called my son. But if you go to that passage in Hosea 11.1, 1, where God is saying, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son, he's not predicting that this is going to happen in the future. He's talking about what happened back in the past in 1446 B.C. So it's a historical event that is a picture or type of some event that will happen in the life of Jesus. Now, the third category is liber- literal history. Again, it's a historical event that happened, but it's applied to a situation. Uh, there's a slight difference between the two categories. Ultimately, what, what I'm saying is that what liberals came along and what, what these conservative evangelicals said was they're not denying that that the New Testament writers are using these psalms and other passages in the Old Testament and applying them to Jesus. All they're saying is that those writers, when they wrote, weren't predicting, writing predictive prophecy when they wrote. Okay? There's a huge difference. You look at Isaiah 53. Isaiah wasn't talking about Jesus in Isaiah 53. He's talking about some historical event in Israel. And then the New Testament looked at it and went, ah, see, that fits Jesus, and the writers of the New Testament apply it to Jesus. But that's not exactly what this literal history and application is. So in Matthew 2, 17, which is at the time of the slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem, after the Magi come and they tell Herod that the Messiah has been born in Bethlehem, Herod sends his uh, SS troops to go kill all the infants in Bethlehem under the age of two. Now, again, we have fulfillment language. But if you, and here's the quote, Matthew 2.18, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, what's happening is this is taking a text that comes out of Jeremiah 31.15. And Ramah is not Bethlehem, okay? And um, so it's not in exactly the same place. And in uh, the original context, Jeremiah 31.15, the women of Ramah, the mothers, are seeing their children being taken off in shackles by the Babylonians to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar in the invasion of 605 and 598. And they're taking these uh, Jewish captives back to be slaves in Babylon. And so nobody dies. They're weeping because they're not going to see them again. So the circumstances in, in the historical context of Jeremiah 31 are not at all the same as the circumstances in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, but Matthew chapter 2, Matthew is applying it. This is the same kind of thing that happened back then. It's happening now. Uh, the difference is, of course, now these are babies and they're being killed by Her- Herod's, Herod's soldiers. 
And then the fourth category is one uh, called summary, where uh, Jesus, it says here, Jesus came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled. See, there's that language again. You get my point that every time you see the word fulfilled doesn't mean it's historic. It's a literal prophecy with literal fulfillment. Each one is different. You always have to look at each time and see which one of these four it is. And here it's a summary because there's no place in the Old Testament where he will be called a Nazarene. Now, there's a couple of different interpretations. I prefer the one that's, that takes the view that what's going on here is Nazareth is not a well-respected town. We looked at this briefly when we talked about Nathaniel in John chapter 1 when Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. And uh, before that, Nathaniel uh, said, I think it was Andrew that came to Nathaniel and said, well, we found the Messiah. And he's from Nazareth. And he goes, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because they thought Nazareth was some backwater. That, that There's only a few people there. Nothing, they never produced anything. It's not an important city. There's no uh, great synagogue or great rabbi there. Can anything good come out of, of, uh, of Nazareth? And so... This sort of summarizes everything that is said in the Old Testament about the fact that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be rejected, he's going to be spit upon, he's going to be looked down upon, he's going to be ridiculed, all of these things. He's going to be treated like somebody from some backwater that has no significance and, and no, 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 no meaning. So what I'm focusing on here is that there are clearly passages in the Old Testament that are not given as predictive prophecy, but then New Testament writers apply them. But what happens under the influence of critical scholarship is that people go back and they, these scholars go back and they make everything some sort of typology or application and no literal uh, predictive statement. But this passage we're looking at here is very important. 2 Samuel 23.1 makes these statements. Now, these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, let me tell you the normally accepted standard interpretation of this passage it is all about David. It's not about the Messiah. You don't see Messiah mentioned there. You do see the word anointed, but in the way this is translated, it's talking about the man uh, who's raised up on high who is David, and he's the anointed of God. So the standard view is David's the son of Jesse, um, and that he is then... Uh, identified by Samuel, by God, and is anointed to be king. He has these humble beginnings, and the Lord lifts him up and puts him in a very important position. So God raises him on high. He, God exalts David. And that he is anointed by Samuel, so he is the anointed of the God Jacob. And he is the one who writes the psalm, so he is the sweet psalmist of Israel. And all of that sounds very good. The problem here is that this is placing all of the emphasis on David. This is all about David. But if you look at what comes in the subsequent verses, this is not all about David. 
I have underlined the phrase, thus says and thus says, because this is a very interesting word in the Hebrew that should grab people's attention. And there are some pages written on this in commentaries that I had to wade through today. And uh, they came close, but no cigar. Okay, they just missed it. Now, these, thus says David, both times it is this Hebrew noun, Naum. Now, what's Naum is a word that refers to a prophetic oracle. It is used in uh, two other or three other significant passages. The first two are related to Balaam's oracles. Remember, Balaam had three oracles. They're referred to as with this word, Naum. And in each of those, they talk about the Messiah. So both of those passages, Numbers 24, 3 through 4, Numbers 24, 15, and 16, and then a third passage, Proverbs 30, verse 1, all use Neum for oracle, and each of those other ones are a prophecy about the Messiah. Now, when we look at how some modern translations translate this, here's the NET Remember, the NET was translated. Most of the translators in the Old Testament were either graduates or faculty at Dallas Seminary. This was done about 20 years or uh, maybe 20 to 25 years ago. These are the final words of David. The oracle, see, they get that right. The oracle of David, son of Jesse. The oracle of the man raised up as a ruler. Chosen by God, the God of Jacob, Israel's beloved singer of songs. Actually, they do a little more paraphrasing there than uh, translating. So that is how they handle that. So the next verse that we have to look at, because it's critical in understanding all of this, is down in verse 5. Verses 2, 3, and 4 are going to really talk about how God has given this covenant to David. And uh, what is expected of David as a ruler. And it talks about how a ruler, see if you notice in verse, um, if you notice in verse uh, three, the God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me, he who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Well, see if you start off saying this is all about David then that verse is all about David. Now, I talked about this verse on Thursday night, and I, I, I didn't say that. I talked about that sets the standard for the king. But I said nobody meets that standard. No ruler has ever met that standard. David didn't meet that standard. And so when you get to verse 5, the New King James translates it, although my house is not so with God, now, that's a good translation because what David is recognizing there is God gave me this covenant. He promised blessings to my house, but my house is not just. My descendants are not just. He's making predictive prophecy. My, my house is not just. He knows that he hasn't been just. He's had these sins. He's had these problems. He's not just. And he says, and it should be translated this way with a sense of a contrast, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant. That's God's grace even though my house is not just. He's, he's made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things, and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, 
Will he not make it increase? That's a future orientation. Will he not bring this to pass? Now look at these other translations. So we have the NET, which I just mentioned, which translates it not as a question. It still translates it as a sentence, but look at the difference. My dynasty is approved by God. How do you get my dynasty is approved by God out of although my house is not so with God? You see, one says it's not, my house isn't that way, and the other one says, no, it's approved. This is a problem. If it's all about David, then it's got to be good. David's the just king. My dynasty is approved by God, for he has made a perpetual covenant with me, arranged all its particulars, and secured that section's good. He always delivers me and brings all I desire to fruition. See, that's talking historically about David. It's not a predictive prophecy. Now, the uh, Holman Christian Study Bible, I've underlined the fact that he, it, it changes the statement to a question. The problem with that is Hebrew... If Hebrew's asking a question, it sticks a, a form of a word, a hey. A, a, a hey in the, as the letter and an a um, vowel at the beginning, ha. It sounds similar, but it's different from the, from the Hebrew article. There's no marker of a question here. It's real obvious. Is this a question? No, there's no question mark there is what we would say. So it's not a question. But this is how the Holman Christian Study Bible translates it. Is it not true my house is with God? And what would you, how would you answer that? Yes. It's, again, it's making a positive statement about David's house. But that's not what the Hebrew says. For he has established an everlasting covenant to me, ordered and secured every detail. Will he not bring about my whole salvation and my every desire? What I'm saying here is by mistranslating something in that first verse and misinterpreting it, they end up having to make the rest of this section all about David. It's not about David. It's about the Messiah. The issue goes back to the Masoretic text. Hebrew is written without vowels until the Masoretes came along about four or 500 years after Jesus. And the problem is they put in different vowels. It changes the whole meaning. So Here's how it's translated. The Masoretic text says the declaration of the man raised on high, but if it's based on other ancient translations like the Septuagint and, and manuscripts at Qumran and all of the other non-Masoretic ancient texts all read, it's the declaration of the man raised up concerning the Messiah. So this is the oracle, so let's change it. These are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, and the oracle of the man concerning, the man is David, the oracle of the man concerning the Messiah. In other words, this is about the Messiah. This isn't about me. Notice the difference. And if you miss it here and make it all about David, then you mess up the rest of it and you don't understand it. So here, just so, this just looks like chicken scratch to you. I know that. But see, here's, these two letters are the same in all three examples. Notice under this example right here, you have just a horizontal line. 
And under this example, you have one that looks like a T. Those are both A-class vowels, but one is long and one is short, and one is, the word means upon or elevated or high, and the other word with, with the different vowel means about or concerning. It's a preposition. See, just by changing the vowel, the Masoretes made this a non-Messianic verse and took predictive prophecy out of the picture. This isn't about a coming Messiah. This is about uh, David. John Salehammer, who has done quite a number of good things related to the study of Hebrew, recently went to be with the Lord. And I have this volume. I have not had the time to read it. It has been highly recommended. He has strong things to say about Messianic prophecy, and he says the effect of the difference in the length of the vowel is such that the title anointed one in the Masoretic text refers to King David, whereas in other non-Masoretic versions of the text, David's words are taken as a reference to the Messiah. This is all because of the influence light though it might be, on, uh, on conservative scholars are in, impacted by these, these studies. They're taking literal prophecy out of the Bible. So what do we find? In the, these, these four verse, next four verses, we read, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, So notice the parallelism here. In verse 2, it's the Spirit of the Lord who spoke by me. And then in verse 3, he says, it is the God of Israel. Why? Because if you, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. The Spirit's the same thing. So it's the Spirit of the Lord is the individual person responsible for inspiration, but it is God, the triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are the ones who are providing uh, the scripture. So the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. So that's parallel. The God of Israel is the rock of Israel. We've studied that many times. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by, by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? So this verse is just a reflection of what Peter says in Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. Knowing this verse, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but... Holy men of God spoke by the uh, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So David, under divine inspiration by the Holy Spirit, can predict the future. That is predictive prophecy. But man who rejects the supernatural says there's no such thing as predictive prophecy. But the Bible has dozens and dozens and dozens. Hundreds of Messianic prophecies, but dozens and dozens and dozens, about a hundred, that relate to the first coming, and the rest relate to the second coming. And what does the Spirit of God say? What did God say to, to David? The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men 
must be just, ruling in the fear of God. This is God's standard for judgment, for, I mean, for government. God's standard for government is that the ruler must be just. And the word there is tzaddik. It must be just. Now, tzaddik can mean righteousness or justice. So the, if it's translated righteousness, it refers to the standard of God. The standard is his character. Justice is the application of righteousness where justice applies the standards of God's character and judges men. So we have passages that reinforce this all through the Old Testament, Psalm 7, verse 11. God is a just judge. Today we have such trauma about social justice. But what standard do they apply to get justice? Where do they get the idea of absolute right and absolute wrong? Their whole concept of justice is shaped by culture, what they think is fair here and now. They don't understand that in the here and now, there will never be the kind of justice they want. We live in a world where every one of us at times says, this isn't fair. Life isn't fair. We have to teach our kids this. Life isn't fair. You don't get to do what you want to do. You may never get to do what you want to do. There are numerous examples of people who were set on one course in life and then uh, a parent got sick and they ended up having to take care of that parent for the next 30 years and they never did what they wanted to do and they say, that's not fair. It's not fair. It's not just. But there's no fairness and there's no justice in a fallen world. I have to go to work every day. Yeah, boy, isn't that terrible? Everybody does. That's what happens as a result of sin. We earn our living by the sweat of our brow. We have to get up in the morning, and we start learning this when we're little. We learn this because we have to get out of bed when we don't want to, and we have to go to school when we don't want to, and we have to be with people we may not like and who may not like us. But that's reality because one day you may have to go into the military, and there's going to be some guy training you, and he really doesn't like you. And he's going to call you all kinds of names. Maybe they don't do that anymore. But you're going to learn discipline. That's what it's all about. We do not live in a, in a fair world. There are some things we can do to make some things better, but there's not a lot we can do. There is unfairness and injustice in the world. But God is a just judge, and he is angry with the wicked every day, and someday there will be an accounting. Psalm 72, 7, In his days the righteous shall flourish. And the abundance of peace until the moon is no more. That's talking about the Messiah in the Messianic kingdom. A righteous king will rule until the moon is no more. Guess what happens? There's going to be more people than this grains of sand on the seashore that are going to reject perfect justice. Because the problem isn't the environment, the problem isn't the government, the problem is the sin nature, because whenever you have government, you're going to have somebody telling you what you can and cannot do, and the sin nature rebels against that. Psalm 1434, righteousness exalts a nation, but we look long and hard for a nation that is truly righteous. There never has been and there never will be. Sin is a reproach to any people. That is true. And every people, every group of people, every nation has sin. So Proverbs sixteen twelve. It is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness. David certainly did. 
for a throne is established by righteousness. And we've seen what happened after his great sin becomes public. But righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Mercy and truth go before your face, Psalm eighty nine fourteen. He will eventually establish that. Uh, Psalm eleven seven. for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance upholds the right, but he gives people freedom to make stupid, foolish, evil choices. And that's why there's unfairness in the world. So we come back to 2 Samuel 23, 4. He shall be, that is, this Messiah that's going to come. He will be like the light of the morning. When he comes, it, it, it's depicted many places as the great dawn, the morning light. When we wake up in the morning, we look outside. It may be cloudy. It may be stormy. Some days we look outside in Houston in August. We got up this morning. We looked outside, and uh, there was a clear sky, and the humidity dropped, and it was 10 degrees cooler than it was last week or two days ago, and it felt so much better. It's going to be better in the morning. But not all dawns are bright and beautiful. The one described here is the coming of the messianic king will bring a new world, a morning without clouds. It will be like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. It is going to be glorious. It's going to be a world that is refreshed, that's going to be full of hope, and there will be a perfect king and a perfect government. Verse 5, then David says, I failed. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant. That's God's grace. My house failed. I am not just. I sinned. Everyone who comes from me is going to be a sinner except one. He has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. God has ordered everything and he will secure that promise. For this is my salvation and my desire. Will he not make it increase? God will make that promise come true. Now, I remind you what we saw earlier in these other translations that just applied the whole thing to David. In the NET, in the uh, Holman Christian Study Bible. And then we come to the last two verses. But the sons of rebellion, guess what word that is for rebellion? How many times have we talked about this recently? It's Belial. And it refers to those who are destructive, those who reject the foundations of society, those who just want to tear everything down, who want to destroy everything. This is talking about Antifa. This is talking about Black Lives Matter. This is talking about all these organizations that have high-sounding ideals but then when they want to go march in favor of them, they end up destroying private property. They end up burning things down. And then they come along and say, well, your great-great-great-great-grandfather owes it to my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, and so it's fair. I can take your money. Well, let's see your heritage and see my heritage and see if there's anything true about that. And maybe we can trace it back even further and maybe we'll reverse things because this has been the way of the world. One group of people defeats another group of people. You know, my line goes back through the Irish and the Scots and they were certainly abused and mistreated by, uh, by the English. And, and so, you know, I'm not going to go back and ask Queen Elizabeth to make reparations to me. That's foolish. Every generation stands on its, on its own. 
But that's who these are, the sons of rebellion, those who would seek to overturn everything. They will be as thorns thrust away. What do you think of when you think of thorns? Think biblically. It's a result of sin that we have thorns. Thorns and thistles will sprout from the ground, God God told David. Verse 7, but the man who touches them... Okay, touches who? Touches the sons of rebellion. The man, who's the man here? The man is going to be the Messiah. The man who touches them must be armed with iron. Remember Psalm 2? He comes with a rod of iron. It's repeated when we get into Revelation uh, chapter uh, chapter uh, uh, chapter 4, uh, excuse me, 6. He rules with a rod of iron. And the shaft of his spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. I wonder what that describes. Remember what we studied Thursday night, that the Messiah will come unto us, a child is born. We read this every Christmas. Most people don't know what it means. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. That's the Messiah. And the government will be upon his shoulder, not at the first coming, but at the second And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, that's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. Same language that we have in uh, 2 Samuel 23.5. Revelation 20, we see that what happens when Christ returns is that an angel is going to chain up Satan, the dragon, the devil of old, the serpent of old, chain him up for a thousand years, and so he's not going to be a problem. Uh, Christ is going to come. He's going to have perfect government, and there will be no sickness or disease. Everything's going to be perfect. A uh, child can lie down with the the wolf and the lamb will lie down together and a child can put his hand into a cobra's den and not have a problem see the curse is mostly rolled back it's going to be perfect but there's so many people that will rebel against that perfect justice of jesus you don't hear liberal christians talk about this that's because they believe in amillennialism but their jesus is not this jesus This is the Jesus that has true justice, and the world will revolt against him. When Satan is released from his prison, in verse 7, he will go out, in verse 8, to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Millions and millions are going to be in Satan's army to destroy Jesus. And what does it say? A fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Sounds like a fulfillment of 2 Samuel 23, 7. Then the sea will give up its dead, and death and and Hades will deliver up the dead in them, and they will all be judged, all unbelievers, and then death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. That's the second death. So just see what's in 2 Samuel 7, but if you read it in the English, you're not going to get that because there have been all of these different influences on scholars who are interpreting this, and they make it all about David, but it's all about the Messiah. And that is one passage that must be interpreted with a Christ-centered hermeneutic. 
Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to come to understand how much you've revealed to us in your word, how, how much we all fail. Uh, we don't live in a perfect world, and you know that, and we're not to be conformed to that world, but we are to be conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ, transformed by the renewing of our mind. And, Father, that is the, the big battle, the struggle we face every day. Challenge us, Father, to be faithful, to be steadfast in the study of your word, and to internalize it and apply it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.